Hi, I'm Jen Rogers and I'm uh, Vice President for External Affairs at the Royal Statistical Society and I'm at our annual conference which this year comes from the ICC in Belfast. I'm with Amy Jane McKnight who has just delivered a lecture looking at the analytical challenges of harmonising data. So Amy, thank you very much for chatting to us. Can you give me a brief sort of overview, summary as to what it is that you've just given a lecture on? Yes, Jen, thank you very much. So it's a pleasure to be here. So essentially what I was talking about is the challenges of harmonizing data across centers, integrating different data types, and also some of the pre-processing issues that we have that are associated with big data analysis. Yeah, I was really interested. So I've not really delved into genomic data before. I've done the odd little bit and I know of it. Um, but I was super interested at some of the challenges that you were going through when using genomic data and all the differences that you can have, sort of different parts of the body that it's taken from. Can you give a summary or outline? What are the challenges? Because I was amazed. So when it comes to genetic data, looking at SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, there's fairly well established workflows for quality control at every stage of that type of analysis. However, what we know now is that not just the material that you inherit from parents to offspring, the genetic SNP data that really matters, but also how that is integrated with someone's environment. So the medication they take, the diet they eat, the exercise they take, all has an impact on their disease risk or on behavioral risks. That type of analysis is called epigenetics, and increasingly more and more people are looking at DNA methylation as a primary marker of epigenetic analysis. When it comes to epigenetics, there are many more quality control steps that have to be considered. So for example, if we have DNA from someone's saliva sample, DNA from someone's venous blood sample, or DNA from a tissue type like the eye or a kidney biopsy, they will all have very specific DNA methylation patterns. So we can't compare a whole epigenome pattern from the kidney to a whole epigenome pattern from venous blood because they have very distinct profiles. So that's one thing that needs to be considered in the analysis. Um, there are different platforms, different chemistries available to enrich your DNA before you do the analysis. All of those enrichment or amplification steps, very, very keen to highlight, they all amplify different regions of the genome slightly differently. So for some, they will over amplify um, cytokines. Others will over amplify other inflammatory markers. So you're not really comparing like for like unless you use the same chemistry up front. Um, when you do the analysis and you're converting from, for example, high density arrays, the original data is intensity in red and green dyes. When you're converting from those red and green dyes to your beta values that are typically used for the analytical processes in methylation, there's important pre-processing steps that need to be considered. Lots of different software tools are available to do that analysis for you, but they all do it slightly differently. So again, you can't compare like for like. You need to make sure there is one analytical profile and you need to make sure that it's the same pipeline that's used for all of the different studies for a meta-analysis. One thing that's really, really critical for methylation is depending on where your source material comes from. So your method of DNA extraction, it doesn't matter whether it's from saliva or from blood, if you use a different kit to extract your DNA, you'll have different methylation profiles. If your DNA is stored, extracted and stored at minus 80 degrees as the gold standard, perfect. But if your DNA is left on the bench for any length of time, the methylation patterns will degrade. And again, you're not comparing like for like. So those sample storage considerations are really, really important for both DNA methylation and for gene expression, RNA analysis. Now this, I mean, it blew my mind and it sounds like it's just a melting pot of disaster waiting to happen. Um, whose responsibility is it 
to be aware of all of these different issues. Does the book fall with you know, clinicians and medics or is it with us as statisticians? Do we need to be aware of all of these things? I think it's one of those issues that really highlight the need for multidisciplinary approach to research projects up front. So you need to have everybody in the room talking together. You need the clinician who knows the phenotype. You need the laboratory expert who's doing the analysis or perhaps outsourcing it to a different center. You need the bioinformaticists and the statisticians who are doing the downstream analysis. So everybody working together to get an idea of where the problems may be and what's the best study plan to overcome those. Because you can't beat a really good study design with the best one in the world. There's no modeling approach that can correct for a poor study design up front. And how often do you think that happens. So how often do you think that all of these things are actually considered and taken into account and allowed for then in the analysis? Rarely. So I think an issue is that we're only really becoming aware of the necessity and the importance of these kind of early stage studies. So a lot of the analysis that's done currently is based on historical or longitudinal cohorts and we just didn't know these things were an issue. So if you look at publicly available data now that's in public repositories, you find that somewhere between a tenth and two thirds of it will have issues with sample contamination, with gender mismatches, with quality control probes that haven't met the kind of minimum standards that we use in 2019 today. Some of that's because we know more about the quality control and we now implement more stringent approaches. Um, some of it might be that in the public repositories there is no tick box that says yes this sample passed or no this one didn't. So wow. if you're doing meta-analysis on publicly available data, yeah. you actually don't know necessarily whether or not those samples have passed basic quality control or not. So what is the knock-on effect then for all of the research that's been done in the past? Can we use it or do we have to now just dismiss it all and say, actually, it wasn't good enough? So I would say that generating the data is a major expense. Once the data is generated, we need to use it as best as we possibly can. So there have been a number of publications that have looked at genome-wide association studies or epigenome-wide association studies and said, actually, that data was published five to 10 years ago. When we redo the analysis with today's quality control, what was shown up as top-ranked findings associated with disease are now thrown out in the quality control rubbish. So those top-ranked markers originally published in high-quality journals just don't meet today's standards of quality control. And you said that sort of you know different platforms and different even ways of extracting um, you know, saliva or bloods that you have to make sure you're using the same kit every single time. Um, why are we not just producing one type of kit that everybody uses so that we don't have all of these issues? Um, so I guess that's a good question, probably one for the market researchers on the genomic <laughs> companies. Um, I think each of the companies are always trying to say, we do something better, we do something better. And you're trying to drive science forward. And without that competition, you don't have the drive to continually improve the methods and approaches. But I guess one thing to highlight is that even if two laboratories use the same kit, if it's in two laboratories in two geographical locations with different lots and batch numbers, you may well get different results. So one thing that's really, really keen to emphasize is that you need to have a certain number of experimental controls included in every batch of the analysis that you're doing, whether it's five years between the batches or whether it's week to week between the batches. Make sure you have one control sample that's included in every analysis that you do, because that's how you can help control for your systematic issues in the wet lab laboratory. Yeah. 
And what do you think then is the future for this area of research? I mean, I, I can. Are you just going around to loads of medical conferences and just giving this talk so that everyone is aware of this? Um, so that going forward, better analysis can be done. This is the third time I've given a talk on this type of topic, and there's plenty of other researchers that will um, give talks on a similar theme. It's something we're all becoming more and more aware of. I think the best thing to do is to make the data publicly available to bona fide researchers, albeit with your proper ethics and governance approval. Um, but what's really, really important is when you're reporting the results, make sure you're reporting very open and transparent manner. So exactly what was done, what software was used, what version was used, what kit was used, because all of that will help inform how the data is used downstream. And I think we are potentially going to learn some really important lessons from this about probably lots of other areas of medicine. You know, we're now automating lots and lots of things and everybody's probably developing their own software to be able to do it, their own even AI algorithms to be able to do it. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the things, the issues that you're talking about here are probably going to give us some really important lessons to learn across a whole area, like a whole different variety of medical applications. Um, so I found it really interesting. I'd be interested to know, what is, what's been the response from medics and clinicians when you start talking to them about these sorts of things? Shock and awe, mostly. It's not something anybody had considered. You think you spend all of this money collecting samples, you do your due diligence, you have lots of biological resources, and you, you've created what you think is a fabulous bioresource linked to really good phenotype and social demographic information. And then somebody in the laboratory does the analysis and says, well, actually, that's rubbish because your DNA samples weren't collected appropriately in the first place, so we can't do what you wanted to do. So I think it's there's a measure of it being completely and utterly soul-destroying. Yeah. Um, and I would definitely emphasize, if anyone's thinking of creating a bioresource, get in touch with the lab experts and the data scientists and statisticians up front. Yeah, I think this is uh, an example of where that, as you said, that multidisciplinary approach is just vital for it to be able to work. Um, I really enjoyed your lecture. I found it absolutely fascinating and I had no idea that there were all these sorts of issues. You know, as a statistician, you just get given the data and you assume that everything's okay with it and you just go ahead and analyze it. So you really opened my eyes up um, and I'd like to just say a huge thank you for the lecture because it was great. Thank you very much. Thank you.